Michael and Mary, really appreciate that. And uh, thank you to everyone that's here and everyone that's joining us online. It's great to see you this Sunday, this Thanksgiving weekend here in Canada. And, uh, you know, we have, we have so much to be thankful for. We, we live in this incredible country, and uh, there's just so much that, that we can be thanking God for this weekend. Don't, you know, while you are, whatever tradition you follow... I know there's a lot of people that are new to Canada, so, you know, it may be, maybe it's your first Thanksgiving here, um, you know, and we just, we trust that everyone's going to have just an amazing weekend, enjoy the extra time off that we've got uh, with a holiday tomorrow, and uh, we just, yeah, have a, have a really good Thanksgiving weekend. In that, may we never be forgetting just to, to give thanks to God, yeah? thanks to Him for, for all that He does in our, in our lives, everything that He's done for us, even if we're going through times of trouble. Right? It's in those moments where we give thanksgiving and praise in the middle of that storm of our life where so much happens and so much changes. You know, God uses everything, you know, the good and the bad that's going on. So I've been hearing some, some great praise reports of people getting jobs and dif- different things that are going on in people's lives, and so those are always great for us to be able to hear. Um, this morning, I am going to be continuing on with our series. We talked in the last couple of weeks you know, about the importance of us being emotionally healthy and the importance of us being with God and, and not just focusing on doing for God. And I had a few questions about, well, how, you know, how are we going to get to the application of this? And right now I'm presenting you know, a, a few concepts to us. But then in November, we're really going to start getting to the application of being with God, you know, what that looks like, what kind of practices we can put in our lives. So those are things you're going to discuss in life groups, stuff we'll be talking from the front. So while, you know, I threw out the thing of Sabbath, us taking a day of rest, you know, as, as one of those concepts, there'll be more that we're talking about as the weeks go on. So don't worry, we're not just going to be glossing this over. This is a, this is a long-term change for us as disciples of Jesus. Right? It's a way, a lifestyle, a way of following the way of Jesus. So this isn't something that we're just like, you know, do a couple of sermons on and hopefully you've got it. We recognize, I recognize this is stuff that takes a long time for us to implement in our lives. It's new habits, new ways of living. It's us, us learning to live like Jesus did in every single way. So today, one of the concepts that I'm, that I'm speaking on, or the, or the concept, is that the importance of us understanding history, right? Especially our history as Christians. The Spanish philosopher George uh, Santayana said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Winston Churchill, the British Prime Minister during the Second World War, he said that those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Probably quoting George. You know, we, uh, in the scriptures, Paul wrote in Romans 15 verse 4, he said, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we may have hope. He was, he was referring to, when he's talking about the past, he's referring to the Old Testament. And there's a number of things that we see in Scripture, both in Old Testament and New Testament, where it's encouraging us to remember the past, to learn from the past. And it's not just the past in terms of Scripture that for us as followers of Jesus we need to learn from. It's, it's learning from you know, the last 2,000 years of Christian history as well. And it's having an understanding and knowing of that. So 
as I'm speaking today, there's one thing I'm going to ask for everyone that's here and, and for everyone that's watching online with us live or watching this later. What I ask right now is that we can just, let's just pause and let's ask God for humility. Lord, I, I pray that we would be humble this morning, that we would humbly learn Jesus from you. We would learn from our history. We'd be encouraged by that. That if there's any concepts that I speak of today that, that maybe we've held on to and we haven't known where they came from or why we've held on to them, that we'd be able to humbly come to you, Jesus, and let you teach us with a humble heart. And I, I say that for myself as well. Because, you know, there's some of the things I'm going to speak on today from history, they probably really may challenge some of our ideas that we have. But I myself am not, I'm not standing up here going, I am the infallible expert and I've got all the answers. I'm always humble before God, willing to learn. And so if there's things that I say today that are like, wow, that's a little shocking to me. You know, to, to, that's when, you, when I say it, that it's like, that's really shaking something I've always believed. And you want to talk more about it, I will very humbly chat with you about it. And if you're like, well, James, I want you to, what about this? I want you to look at this, or have you considered that? I'm, I'm happy to do that. And I just would ask the same from all of us, that we wouldn't approach anything from a sense of, we've got this, we've got the perfect answer. Often we think that way because someone we respect, someone that's invested in our lives has taught us something, or we've, we've looked up to a preacher online or a book we read. Most Usually it's typically someone that was really important in our lives, right? And we've learned something and we've just accepted it because it was told to us and we just continue believing that thing. So it's why, though, it's so important we understand history. We don't all have to be historians and have a you know, perfect understanding of history, but if we don't have an understanding of history, then we're doomed to repeat the same mistakes over and over and over things, okay? So we're going to start our journey here, history-wise, in, in 70 AD. Now, 70 AD, anybody know what happened in 70 AD? Jerusalem was destroyed. <laughs> Is that what you were going to say too, Peter? Okay, there we go. Yes, so in 70 AD, Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple was destroyed. Well, what happened here? Well, we know at the time of Jesus, there was these people called the Zealots, right? And the Zealots were, they were zealous for God. They wanted to see, you know, Rome overthrown. They'd come about in a time of the Bible that a lot of our Bibles don't have, right? In the time of history, we don't have the books of the Maccabees, um, because they're not considered inspired scripture, but they're really great in terms of history. So if you can, on your online app or things like that, you have a Bible that has those, those books in it that have been removed from most Bibles because they aren't considered in inspired, they still are really good history. And the Maccab time of the Maccabees was a time when these, these you know, people with these beliefs, they were trying to free themselves from being oppressed in Jerusalem. And they, they were fairly successful in this time, except then Rome raised up and it came and oppressed them next, right? And so the zealots were not happy about this. And they, they were around at the time of Jesus, even one of Jesus' disciples was a zealot. And, and they wanted to use political and military force to overthrow Rome 
and free Jerusalem once again. They fully believed that when the Messiah came, that's exactly what would happen. He would lead them triumphantly in the overthrow of Rome and, you know, over their oppression, and they would reestablish the Jewish nation. So, after the death of Jesus, you know, the zealots, they were still, they wanted to overthrow Rome. There was the, the Pharisees, they wanted to overthrow Rome, and some of the things that were going on politically were getting worse and worse, and so there was this climate that was developed in history where it's like, yeah, we're going to overthrow the Roman oppressors. And the, so the Jewish zealots, the Pharisees, they started revolting, they started, they started um, basically trying to, they, in both in Jerusalem and in this, in this city, this fortress, they, they started taking up positions and attacking and fighting, and they were actually winning, you know, some of the battles against the Romans. And it was interesting at this time of history as well, because one other thing was, is everyone thought they were a messiah. You know, there, there was all these people that were rising up. And it's like, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Messiah. It was so common at that point in time in history. You have all these weird things that are going on in this, in this short period of time after Jesus' death and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. So what happens is that, uh, and, and pardon that I'm reading, but I am not able, an expert on history and able to memorize all these different things. But, you know, many people, they were claiming to be the Messiah, and then Cestus Gallus, the Roman governor of the region, besieged Jerusalem with 20,000 soldiers and failed. Okay, the, the Roman emperor at this time is Nero, but the governor of this region is, is Cestus Gallus. And so 20,000 soldiers, they go and they fail. They fail. You know, they have to retreat. But Nero's not, Nero's not okay with that. You know, it's not like, no, we're going to take failure. So then he sends um, Ves. Vespasian, right, a decorated general to go and quell the revolt, and he goes, and, and he's much more successful. He uses different tactics against the different cities, and he goes, he's like, oh, he's going to go after Jerusalem last. And so he's, he's attacks the other, some of the other strongholds, is successful with some of that, and then he, then once he's quelled what's going on in some of the other smaller cities, he gets his army and he encircles Jerusalem. And but then Nero dies, and, and this general, Vespasian, gets recalled to Rome because people are suggesting that maybe he should be the next emperor, so he leaves his son Titus, not the Titus of the Bible, you know, but his son Titus to lead the army, and they succeed. They, they wipe, they finally, after a long period of time, they succeed in overthrowing Jerusalem. And at that point in time, the, the city is destroyed. Either people are slaughtered in battle or they are, you know, they've either starved to death because they have been in, you know, they've been surrounded for so long. They're either slaughtered in battle or they are taken captive. They're taken captive into slavery and sold to slaves all around the Roman Empire. So this is what happens in 70 AD. So what about the Christians? Well, they'd fled. They were not there in Jerusalem. They left. Why did they leave? Why did they leave? Because they, they believed the words of Jesus as recorded in Luke 21, 20 to 24. And Jesus' disciples had asked, because Jesus kept talking about the temple being destroyed. And so they'd asked him, well, when's that going to happen? You know, how will we know? And his response to them in, in Luke 21, 20 to 24 is, 
when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out. And let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. In fulfillment of all that has been written. What's he talking about? Fulfillment of the Old... Well, the stuff that had been written up to that point was the Old Testament. So fulfillment, right? And Jesus said, hey, I'm here to fulfill the law. Well, the final fulfillment of everything that Jesus said and did, he's going, hey, the fulfillment of this is going to happen when the temple is destroyed. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are Gentiles are fulfilled. So I'm going to come back to this because it, it's, this is a piece of history that's so important because it comes down to how do we interpret Scripture. A lot of our end times theories come from a not understanding what happened in 70 AD, not understanding what Jesus taught, you know, and thinking that what Jesus is ta- teaching has to do with the end times of his return, which he does teach on, and we're going to come to that at the end of the preach. But this is one of these things that's so important that we understand Christian history. Literally, what happened. Because we do, we understand that this destruction of the temple, it, it was done. And if we understand what Jesus taught, then we understand that Jesus was teaching that basically, like, I'm the fulfillment of the law. The time that I'm working, the, the time of where God is exclusively working through the Jewish people is coming to a close. It's coming to an end. And there is the new you know, there's the, the new, this, this now, you know, all the church, Jews and Gentiles combined following Jesus. It's something completely new, completely different. The history of the Old Testament, like Paul wrote to us, you know, it is so helpful for us. We learn so much from it. We, 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 we like he said, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us. So that through the, the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we may have hope. But something, Jesus was doing something completely new. And his mission to the Jewish nation, because Jesus was Jewish and he sent to the Jews, was to get them to understand why he was really there. And he was the opposite of who they thought he was. He wasn't leading them triumphant. for something. He wasn't reestablishing the Jewish nation. He was like, actually, this time's fulfilled. God's doing something new. And I realize, that's why I'm going to come back to this thing at the end, because in the last 200 years, there's been this complete, there's been this theology that developed only in the last 200 years that God's still working through the Jewish nation. He's still doing this. He's still doing that. The whole thing, the whole political thing of the reestablishment of Israel as a nation comes out of that thinking. We'll talk a little bit about that near the end of the preach. But our, our absolute, and this is an extremely popular American theology that actually started in, the, in, in England, well, actually in Ireland. And it's very popular. It's been extremely popularized, this type of theology. And a lot of our end time thinking comes from it. But it's based 
on a lack of understanding of history and a lack of understanding, and sometimes because we don't understand history, of what Jesus was teaching. So let's get to another one. So I'm asking again, do we function with humility today in us understanding history? Because, you know, it's amazing, right? I mean, this is incredible history, 2,000 years of the church, and often we function within like a 30 or 40 year period in terms of our thinking, you know? We're only allowing our thinking to be shaped by like even sometimes what we're hearing in the last week, you know, as opposed to a broad understanding of our history. You know, the Bible, it's always so interesting to me when I have conversations with people about the creation of the Bible. Right? That's from the New Testament. We know the Old Testament where it's thing, but then the New Testament, where did it come from? Well, we know these different letters and things along those lines that we have. We have the, we have the Gospels. We have the, the letters of the New Testament. Well, the formation of the Bible, it, it, in its current form as we have it today, the, the books that we call the Bible, it wasn't until basically the year 400. I'm, I'm rounding up a bit by a couple of years that we have, have the Bible as we understand it today. The books existed before that, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the different letters, they were being written. Those were all being written in, you know, the time from Jesus until 30, 40 years after he, was, he, was, he had died and risen. But there was not a common agreement on what the Bible was in the early church. And so there became, and there was all these problems arising because there was lots of people that were rising up and they were going, they were coming up with their prophetic things and they were making declarations about God. There was, there was all these misconceptions that were coming into the Christian communities and the leaders at the time were going, okay, we've got to do something about this. And so, huh, I'm just so terrible at producing name, uh, pronouncing names, Athenaeus. You know, the Bishop of Alexandria in 367 wrote an Easter letter which recognized 27 books of the Bible. So he's like, okay, these are the ones that we're going to use. And they had two basic tests, you know, but they, they originally had tried, they'd originally tried to come up with a, with a list of Bibles using these two crit, you know, criteria. And they said, okay, well, you know, was, were they connected to the apostles? Was a book connected to the apostles? And that will be part of the test. And they considered Paul to be an apostle. So his books you know, were able to get in. And they also... Uh, da, 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 da. Sorry, lost my place here. Were they in common use? That was their second test. Where a lot of, did a lot of churches accept the use of them? So like, okay, well, this will be our test. The problem was there was all these... There's all these books or letters that were being used that were being attributed to the apostles, but the theology in it was really off. So like, okay, this test doesn't work. So then they had to come up with other tests, which we won't get into all of those today because we're talking history, not, not simply just the creation of the Bible. And finally, this Athenaeus, the bishop of Alexandria, is like, okay, these are the books we're going to use. And so, but there was still tons of debate about this. They, they in 300 and, uh, where is that, 397, the Council of Carthage confirmed the list that Athenaeus had put together, what is that, 
almost 40 years earlier, 30 years earlier. They confirmed it, but there was still huge debate within the church. For example, you know, there were influential bishops such as Ignatius, Clement of Rome, and Polycarp had helped these writings achieve acceptance, yet much dispute, and that, was, that acceptance was of like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but there was much dispute remained about Hebrews, about James, about 2 Peter, 2 and 3 John, Jude, and Revelation. Still, still is today at different times. Absolutely, right? And, and it just continued. Eventually, the wrangling continued, people continued, but eventually, it just slowly, this thing became accepted, primarily because, you know, power got centralized. Because shortly after this, we have the Roman Catholic Church that is born. And it's born by an emperor of Rome who up to that point, the Romans had been persecuting the Christians, which started in 64 AD after Nero blamed the Christians for the burning of Rome, even though it's likely he burned it down. Because the areas that he burned down, he then took and built his big golden palace on. Um, but he, you know, they'd been persecuted. But now suddenly the Roman emperor is like, okay, now the official everyone in Rome is a Christian. This is the official religion. We're giving up polytheism. Everyone is now automatically a Christian. If you're a Roman citizen, you are a Christian. That's, that's basically what it was. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't based on your following of Jesus. It was based on how you were born. You, know, you were born into Rome. You were born as a Roman citizen. And so now you're a Christian. It's, it's the foundation that we have. I grew up Catholic. It's the foundation that comes from the thing of we baptize children, right? They're, you're born into the Roman Catholic Church. And so, it's, it's so interesting, right? Because the Bible that they were using, we, we then get a few, and I, I didn't write all these different pieces down, but the Latin Vulgate that's formed shortly after, you know, it's, it's written after the Roman Catholic Church is formed. And, and then the Bible's in Latin, which is a language that the majority of people didn't use or understood. It was like an elite language. And we go through, from this period of time, through until the Reformation, and priests, most priests can't read the Bible. Most priests can't read the Bible. So power gets centralized. You, know? you get all these weird different things. You get some amazing things. You, the beautiful thing about our history is there's this wonderful line through our history of people absolutely devoted to Jesus. You know, the God working, signs, wonders, and miracles, him doing all these incredible things. But then there's also this history that is absolutely political, that's religious, that doesn't represent Jesus in any way, shape, or form. If you understand, the, if you look into the history of the church, you see the politics, you see, you know, this concept of church and state that we have in America, right, and in Canada, where this thing, we've got to separate church and state. Well, it's because the church controlled the state, in the, in up until the Reformation and after the Reformation, even in, in a lot of different countries, the church you know, had as, as much power or more power than the kings. It was, it was very different than what we see of the Bible today or what we see of the life of Jesus. And so this, this history, how things got play, get played out is really important. Like, for example, there's a Eastern Orthodox Church, you may have heard of that, and there's the Roman Catholic Church. Well, this schism happened 
in 1054. And because, again, it was all about power. You know, the divides had been happening more and more and more. The Roman Catholic churches used Latin. The Orthodox, the, uh, the Eastern Orthodox Church, Eastern Church used Greek as their language. And, but this, basically the, basically the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church decided he should be in charge of the Eastern Church and made a declaration about that. He also changed the Nicene Creed and said that he had the authority to do that. And so the, the, uh, Eastern Church excommunicated the Pope, and the Pope excommunicated the head of the Eastern Church, and a divide happened. But up to then, there was one church. Very imperfect, very political, very, most, most people not having any access to the Bible, very based in tradition, and somehow God protected people through. Again, knowing in history, because there was these people that fled to the desert to be with God, the Desert Fathers. You know, it's where monks started coming in. Monks started really good. Like, hey, we want, a, we want a pure relationship with Jesus. These people operated in signs, wonders, and miracles. They lived like Jesus did. Incredible history. But again, it eventually became institutionalized, became about monasteries, monks withdraw from society. It, it, it got corrupted itself. So it's this really interesting journey that we have. Out of the schism that I was talking to you about, we get the Crusades. Now, now I got to read you something because, man, this is very interesting. So, per Pope Urban launched the First Crusade. His hope with launching the First Crusade was to—he actually wanted to try to regain the—the the, he wanted to unite the churches. Um, you know, let's re, re, reunite the Eastern and Western churches. Unfortunately, he kind of wanted to do it by 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 political power. He saw, you know, he was, they were, he was written to by the church and emperors in Constantinople because they were being invaded by the Muslims at that point in time. And he's like, can you please help us? So he saw this as an opportunity. So what he did is he gave this stirring speech, you know, to to the, the people under his command, the different kings and things along those lines, basically saying, we've got to go and take up arms against, against the Muslims. And they got behind this. So here's what it says. This is from uh, the 100 Most Important Events in Christian History uh, by a number of different authors. It says, as the Pope's representatives traversed Europe, Recruiting knights to go to Palestine, they received an enthusiastic response from the French and Italian warriors. Many were spurred on by religious goals, but doubtless others went for economic gain and for the sheer adventure of recapturing the pilgrimage sites of Palestine, which, has fallen in, which had fallen into Muslim hands. Perhaps the warriors felt virtuous, virtuous uh, slaying a non-Christian enemy. Slaughtering the infidels who had taken on the Christian holy land might seem like an act of service to God. To encourage the Crusades, Pope Urban and the popes who followed him emphasized the spiritual benefits of war against the Muslims. Taking a page from the Quran, Pope Urban assured the warriors that by doing the penance they would enter heaven directly or at least reduce their time in purgatory. A bloodbath followed. 
once they once they once they eventually got to Jerusalem, a bloodbath followed. Their victory in the holy city, take no prisoners, was the tactic of the crusaders used. One heartily approving observer wrote that the soldiers rode in blood up to their bridle reins. After setting up the Latin kingdom of Jerusalem and electing Godfrey of Bullion as the ruler, they moved from offense to defense. They began to build new castles, some of which still remain. All in the name of Jesus. You know, <laughs> the bloodbaths continued in different ways. Christians just kept killing Christians. Now we see one such story with Wycliffe, who gave us our first English Bible. For anyone listening, for anyone here that may have this belief, King, the King James Version was not the first English Bible. It, it wasn't. The Wycliffe Bible was. Right? And it was produced several hundred years before the King James Version of the Bible. Another little interesting... Uh, anyway, let me focus on Wycliffe. <laughs> so he, he created the first English translation. Now, Wycliffe was incredible. He was, Wycliffe wasn't just some guy that wrote an English Bible. He was the top scholar of that time, highly respected, a university lecturer. The first universities were put together. Oxford was one of them. They were put together to train people for ministry. Wycliffe was one of the top lecturers there, highly respected, Throughout, the, throughout England, well-known, but he had a real problem with how corrupt the church was. You know, it was like, hey, look, this church does not represent, I read scripture, and the way the church is, is not the same. And so it was really important to him to translate the Bible so that people could actually read it. Like, people need to know what the teachings of Christ were, not just hear them through the priests or hear them through, through uh, the popes, but they actually need for themselves to be able to read the scriptures. And he also had, a number, again, any, anyone opposing, you've got a political organization, which was the church at that point in time. So anyone that stood up to or criticized it, it didn't go so well for them. So Wycliffe, I mean, this, is, this is quite funny, Wycliffe actually wasn't killed for his faith. He died of natural causes in 1384. But just so people understood that, you know, this was unacceptable, that putting the Bible in a language you could understand was completely unacceptable and standing up against the church was completely unacceptable. In 1415, okay, so Wycliffe dies in 1384. In 1415, they officially excommunicate Wycliffe from the church. And in 1428, they exhume his bones and burn them just so they know he should have been burned. Now then, at the same time, there was a guy, Jonathan Huss, who had read, who'd heard about Wycliffe's teachings, his criticism of the church. He'd actually come from Constantinople to, to um, or some sorry, from Romania to the UK. He'd been educated at Oxford. He'd gone back. He was now a professor at their university there. Again, highly, highly respected. But standing up, going, hold on. What you're doing as a church doesn't make sense. The way that the structure of this, there's many different criticisms that he was making, and so they killed him too. Killed him too. And it was actually at the same time. They killed, they, they killed him in 1415, and they also at the same time 
excommunicated Wycliffe because they realized he'd influenced him. So we got this kind of messy, messy history as Christians. Nothing perfect about it at all. We get the Anabaptists, and this is just one of the groups. So many different groups, but the Anabaptists, they, you know, they were known because they baptized people. They didn't baptize children. They baptized adults, believing adults. That was their thing in full immersion. You know, and this was not very the, the Lutherans, the Catholics. At this point in time, we'd had the Reformation. You know, in history, we'd had Martin Luther, we'd had John Calvin, we've had these different people that have, have stood up to the Catholic Church and said, hold on, you're wrong. And I'm not going to get into a Reformation history just because we, we think the amazing thing was is they're like, hey, the Bible needs to get to people. You know, so again, following Wycliffe's traditions, the things that he sort of set in place, like the Bible has to be translated into common languages that people understand so they can read the Bible and they challenge the authority of the church. But they weren't that interested in actually in leaving the church. They weren't, they were, so like the things they set up were very similar to the Catholic church and they only left because they had been kicked out of it. But then at this time, these, this other group, because now they had access to the Bible and they're reading it and they're going, hold on, we're doing a lot of things off. And so this group, the Anabaptists, they stand up. And again, they, a lot of them are getting killed. You know, a lot of them are getting killed for what they believe in. There's whole messy history there. Lots, of, you know. Scary thing is that some of the people that we look up to, the Luthers and the Calvins and the things along those lines, they stood by and were the ones saying, "Yes, it's fine to kill these people. It's fine to kill them. All in the name of Jesus." But these Anabaptists that stood up, they, they were actually, they weren't just that they were baptizing, they were trying to restore things to more of like the way church, they understood church to have been in the first century. But here's the interesting thing that started happening, again, is understanding church history. They had the Bible, and so now people are trying to interpret the Bible for themselves. Like they've got access to it, and they're interpreting the Bible for themselves. So now this new phenomena starts happening that we still see happening today. Let me read again about this. So many Anabaptists expect, expected an immediate apocalyptic end to history. Individuals began to arise proclaiming themselves to be special end-time prophets and apostles endowed by God with miraculous power to usher in his kingdom upon the earth. They were going to bring in the return of Jesus. And this is in the 1500s. Melchor Hoffman was one of these supposed end-time prophets or apostles. And, you know, the groups would gather around him. They'd prophesy all kinds of different things. And, and the, one of the things they were prophesied over him is that, you know, you're going to be imprisoned for six months, but then you're going to come out of prison and you're going to lead a, a, this powerful uh, revival, you know, and that his ministry would spread to the whole world. So guess what? A little bit later... The, the, so he was going to be imprisoned in the city of Strasbourg, and a little while later, because he was what he was teaching, he was doing, the authorities of the city of Strasbourg, they arrested him. And he went willingly. Hey, this prophetic word is about to be, to, to be like, fulfilled. So willingly, cheerfully, he went to prison. And he's there, and every day he's writing his followers, and he's having these dreams and visions of everything that's going to happen, and people are following him. This is amazing. You know, God's kingdom is going to be restored. It's finally, this is the, 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 um, the end, Jesus is going to come back, and this guy's going to help usher this in. But then the six months go by. You know, and one of the things that he, 
Hoffman himself became to believe is that he would, when he left prison, he would, with the 144, he would um, leave Strasbourg with 144,000 true apostles endowed with such miraculous power that no one would be able to resist them. But after six months, he was still in prison. So then all these followers that had been prophesying all these things over him, they just forgot about him. Hoffman died in prison. Nothing of what he said having been fulfilled. But, you know, his followers not to be those that had been prophesying these things, those that were part of this particular movement. And this was now an offshoot of Anabaptists. This is not, this isn't like mainline Anabaptists this time. This is offshoot because they'd got this special prophetic revelation and special vision. And they went and decided they were going to establish the new Jerusalem. And that that new Jerusalem was going to be in the city of Munster. This is in Switzerland. So they went, now Munster's a Catholic city, so they went by force to overthrow the city, to take it for themselves, and they were unsuccessful. The, you know, the Catholic authorities of the city, the people, they resisted them, they killed them, and they were, they were ultimately, they were either imprisoned or killed. That new Jerusalem that they had the special prophetic vision to establish was not established. Why do I read this? Because today, there are ministries out there that are extremely popular, that are followed by many people that are establishing the new Jerusalem in the United States. There are people, I am shocked at the amount of social media stuff or even having conversations with people where they fully believe that the rapture is about to happen, and I'm going to get to there in a second, but they basically believe that Jesus is returning right now. You know, before they die, Jesus is going to return that they fully believe that they have special people or they're praying or they're surrounding special people that they've got the revelation that is going to usher in that their ministry, their evangelism, their this, their prayer is going to usher in the return of Jesus in our generation. And this is false teaching. You know, it's a, it's a misinterpretation of, uh, of Scripture. It's an ununderstanding of history. People have been doing this for a long time. This is 1500. 1500. You know, we, we have the, the theology that we have around this. The theology of the rapture only came about, you know, starting in 1830 through a system of thought called dispensationalism. But it's only in 1830 that we came up with this concept. You know, a person named Darby. Now, the other thing that he came up with was Christian Zionism which was the idea that, you know, in order to usher in the return of Jesus that was supposed to, is supposed to happen, that we need to get the Israel, people of Israel back to establish this new Jerusalem. You know, they got to get back to Israel, which again has no basis in Scripture, just wrong interpretation of, of, of the book of Revelations and other writings. And the... I want to read from Matthew 24, verse 36 to 44. Because the reason I say, very, I emphasize this so strongly is that when Jesus was asked about when he, the end would come, when he would finally return, this is what he said. He said, but about the day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father, 
And then he says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day, of no up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with the handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have left his house, let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Matthew 24, verse 36 to 44. So if Jesus himself says that the day and hour is unknown, that no one will know, it will be like a thief in the night, we will not have a clue when he comes, so we've got to live ready every day. If you believe that Jesus could come back in our lifetime, that is a very good thing. That's based in scripture. It's based in what Jesus taught. It's based on how the apostles lived. Jesus could come back at any day, right? So we're to live ready. We're to live according to his commands. We're to live. But nowhere does it say that our job is to usher in Jesus's return. Nowhere does it say in Scripture that we, we will have special advanced prophetic revelation of Jesus' return. It just doesn't say it. It's not there. It's based on bad theology. It's, there's, again, I don't, this could be an entire preach on itself. If I realize, though, I'm challenging thoughts that are common in the United States of America and thus have a significant influence on us and have a significant influence on different things in the world. It's been popularized by movies like the Left Behind series. It was popularized by Hal Lindsey in the, in the you know, last century who believed that the world would end in the end of 19, the, like the 1980s. He believed Jesus would return then. I have, a, I have someone, I knew someone that lived with Lee and I for a period of time whose parents did not educate them, did not send him to college because the world was going to end and that would just be a waste. Okay? This, but that, these are real things. When we start listening to false teaching, and that false teaching can be in a book, it can be in a friend, it can be, you know, in, right now, as I was saying, we have access to all kinds of information, but very little wisdom. I also realize that the things I'm saying could be very shocking to people and it could be really rattling because you've put a lot of investment or people that have invested in you have held these beliefs. It's, it's a, and when we don't know Jesus's mission and we don't know history well, then we come up with all, can come up with all kinds of different things. What I can say to you is if you hold some of these beliefs or maybe you think, you're loved. I, I don't want you to feel embarrassed by the things that I'm saying. You maybe, are, maybe you're angry at the things that I'm saying. You know, that, like, how, how dare he say that? How about he challenge that? So I'm asking for us to, to, for love and humility and us being united in Christ. You know, because 
You know, I'm, I'm not sitting here going, hey, if you believe this, you should get out of the church. I want nothing to do with you. I'm like, hey, let's, let's walk together. Let's really get a, if you, if you truly believe this stuff, then let's get a real understanding. I want to encourage you to really study and get an understanding before you just hold on to a belief because someone told you it should. You should. Understand where these things came from. Because a lot of the beliefs we hold around the end times right now are not based in Christian history at all. And they're not based in Scripture. They, people may be misusing Scripture. They may be quoting a Scripture out of context, out of, out of understanding, or using a book in a way that it shouldn't be used and saying, well, look, the Bible says this. But that's not, that's not how we're meant to use Scripture at all. The most important thing for us as followers of Jesus is to follow him incredibly well. Right? That we would really understand the Gospels. We'd understand what Jesus taught. For me, if, if my Lord and Savior tells me that we are not going to know, then it doesn't matter what prophetic person comes to me and tells me that they've got the answer on when the end times is coming or that they've got a special revelation that he's coming in this generation and so we better all get on the streets and preach and we better all do this and we better all do that because my Lord and Savior said, I will not know when he comes, I just need to live ready all the time. I need to live ready all the time, okay? So, I'm sorry, I went way over, but I, I, hope I, I hope I held our attention with my way over. History, us knowing, like, like I started, right? Those that fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. We're doomed to repeat it. We don't all have to be historians. But our own family history, our church's history, biblical history, we need to know it. As, as far, if we, you know, there's, a, there's an element of us understanding it. We don't need to know it in detail. We don't need to know it in depth. But let's learn from it. You know, let's not reject someone, you know, the teachings of someone from uh, church history because, oh, well, they were Catholic. Let's not reject the teachings of someone simply because of where they were in history. Let's learn from them. It may not all be right, but we can learn. You know, I, I, read, I read of what's going on in 1500, and I'm like, oh my goodness, it's exactly what's happening today. But if we don't know what happened in 1500, if we don't, if we don't know some of the, if we don't know what happened in Jerusalem, in which I didn't, I'm going to say, I for a long time, again, I grew up in North America, and so dispensationalism and all this kind of stuff was stuff that I'd be hearing all the time. And so when people started telling me, like, well, actually, a lot of Matthew, is what he was taught in Matthew and Luke about the end times was actually fulfilled in 70 AD, I'm like, you heretic, how do you say such a thing? You know? <laughs> like, I can't believe you would say that. What's wrong with you? But they were also saying other weird things to me. So I'm kind of like, well, you're also telling me universalism and you're backing it up with this, so it doesn't make sense. But God had to take me through a process of, of being humble and looking at history and looking at, at getting a real understanding of some of these things to be able to go, oh, they're right. Yeah? Not right about this, but about that piece. And when we'll approach God with humility, yeah? When, when we will see him for who he is and Jesus as an incredible Lord and Savior, when we'll follow him wholeheartedly, then a lot of this stuff, and it just, it just comes into the shadows. 
And there's some amazing, there's amazing people I can give you to read, like N.T. Wright, considered the foremost expert on first century Christi- Christianity at this moment in time, who is, by training, a historian. There's, there's, there's amazing people. We live in a time when there's so much information that we've got to be open to. But if, if, we, if we're closed, right, if we just approach life with blinders on, it's like, no, I believe this and I refuse to even look at anything that challenges us, challenges me, that's when we get into a whole lot of trouble. We get in a whole lot of trouble. And in that, we lead a whole lot of people astray. So let's be wise. You know, good Bereans that look at Scripture, understand Scripture, that see the importance of history, recognize that some of it's really messy, that we have nothing. We have, you know, it's pretty difficult for us as Christians to judge other people. We've done all the same things. You know, we're, we're, our history is a mess. It's a mess. And yet somehow through that, God's protected his church. Yeah? Somehow through that, God's got us to a place where today we're gathered and still worshiping Jesus despite the craziness of our history. I'll stop now. <laughs> Lord, I just, I just pray that, that these words that I've spoken, that, Lord, I pray we'd all be able to hear them humbly. I pray that we would hear your voice through everything and that we wouldn't hold on to ideas, but that we'd seek you. We'd seek you out and that we would love one another deeply. We'd love one another deeply. You are the head of your church, all those that call on the name of Jesus. And our hope is in you. Our hope, Jesus, is in you. Amen. Guys, have a wonderful, wonderful week. I'll